0: My hope is in the Lord, Lord, who gave himself for me.
1: me. Hi, I'm John Heminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Cockins Baptist Church. Have you ever prayed about an important request that you truly believe God would desire to help you with and yet receive no answer from the Lord? What do you do in that case? Maybe you've thought what many other believers have come to believe, i.e. that God must not be willing to answer your prayer. The event we'll study this week from the life of Christ speaks directly to this issue. Pastor Jones has a lot to examine on this subject, so let's get right into this message that our pastors entitled, Faith and Answers to Prayer.
0: Have you ever got excited about something but got discouraged to the place where early on you were uh, tempted very highly to abandon your dreams? I think many of us have felt that way. Interesting story. I don't think it's quite uh, true, but a former heavyweight boxer James Quick Tillis uh, is a cowboy from Oklahoma who fought out of Chicago in the early 1980s. And as he would say it, he remembers the first day in the Windy City after his arrival from Tulsa. Quoting now, he says, I got off the bus with two cardboard suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago and stopped in front of the Sears Tower. I put my suitcases down, I looked up at the tower, and I said to myself, I'm going to conquer Chicago. When I looked down, the suitcases were gone. Now, Again, I don't know how accurate James was being at that point, but I will say that um, our faith is a lot of times like a balloon. It can grow quickly, but it can also easily be popped. And so we're coming to, I think, another very unusual circumstance in the life of Christ, involving a demonically uh, um, possessed young boy. His nine disciples who were... Um, uh, Besides Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're just coming down, so the the other nine disciples are involved in this. And a group of Jesus' enemies, the scribes, were there as well. And uh, we really can see some lessons on the issue of faith and of seeing God answer prayer. And uh, also of the really priorities we ought to be having in the as we go through our lives uh, trying to serve the Lord. And so, before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon His Word. I'm in Mark chapter nine. The incident is found in verse fourteen to twenty-nine, and I've entitled it "Faith and the Healing of a Boy." Father, bless us as we look into Your Word. We know that um, that it is instructive for us. It's meant for us to learn from, to see our Savior, to grow from, and to try to imitate his attitude, his thoughts, what He's, how he approaches things. And so, Lord, we ask for your help. I ask for your help as we look into your word, give us understanding of it and how it will apply to our lives even this day. In Jesus' name, amen. What this story starts out with is a sad dispute. Now, what's been going on is Jesus and Peter, James, and John have been apart from the other nine. Jesus took them up on what we call now the Mount of Transfiguration. And, of course, it's named for what happened there. But Jesus took them up there uh, to have really a time of prayer. And, of course, during that time, the disciples, as I can attest to, it's easy to do, they fell asleep. And while they were asleep, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared on that mountain with Jesus, talking to him about his future uh, sacrifice on the cross that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And while that conversation was going on, Jesus now is taking on glorified form. He's like transfigured. His, his, His garments are extremely white. He's giving off light like the light of the sun. And when the disciples awakened to this, um, this was quite quite a thrilling and yet challenging thing that they saw. Now, Jesus and Peter, James and John are coming down off the mountain. And so that's where we run into this next account. In Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, this is Jesus now, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. That would be the other nine disciples who were not with Jesus. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the disciples, what are you discussing with them? So we have what I would call a sad dispute. There are men arguing. And who's carrying on the argument is Jesus' nine disciples uh, and also the religious leaders, uh, the scribes. They're considered like lawyers, uh, students of the law, uh, and it be God's law, the old, the old Testament first five books. And so they're having this dispute. Uh, while this is going on, though, that little boy is suffering. Now, both the scribes and the nine disciples of Jesus... Um, they seem to be far more concerned with their argument than the welfare of the boy. And so, what's the argument over? Well, it seems to be over the fact that that this man had brought to the well, he was thinking. I'm sure that he was bringing him to Jesus, his demon possessed boy. And when he would, when he brought him there, of course Jesus and, the, and and Peter, James, and John are away, and so the other nine disciples, who had been given the ability earlier in Jesus' ministry to cast out demons, they they thought they would uh, they would be able to do this, and so like a balloon, their faith is is expanded. They believe they can help this this young fella, and but when they tried, nothing happened. And so evidently the scribes are questioning them as to, well, what are you doing wrong? Or does this is this really, does Jesus really heal people? Whatever they were saying. there's Now we've forgotten about the boy that's in trouble, and we're, we're just entering into this dispute. So it's definitely a sad dispute. Now, the next thing I want you to notice is it's a very difficult problem here. Then one of the crowd, I'm at verse 17 now of Mark chapter 9, that one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. That would be a spirit that was causing him to be not be able to speak. And, that, and worse than that, listen Listen on. It says that wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashing with his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, I know this probably sounds... To many of us, like um, a person that has epilepsy, let me be very clear here. Please do not assume that an epileptic person is, uh, has a demon. I think there are some Christians that have done that. And I know um, I, I have one godly friend. I have a couple of them that are godly men, and they have epilepsy. And so sometimes some of these same symptoms uh, come upon them. But I will just tell you that uh, although, so we have to be very careful we, we, that we don't jump to this conclusion that someone has these symptoms, that means they have a demon. But on the other hand, sometimes demons can do t- things like this, okay? So there can be um, some, some of those. Just like a demon can, uh, you wouldn't assume that every person that's unable to speak is demon-possessed. So it is here. Not every person that has these symptoms is demon-possessed, but that was what was going on with this young man. And so he says, wherever it seizes him, and that word seizes is a good word, like it grabs him, this demonic spirit, throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So we have... Uh, First of all, this distressed father, he's, and, and, and he's explaining to Christ the difficult problem. He's looking for Jesus to have compassion on him and his son. Now, Matthew also tells us of this account. And in his version of it, which is found in Matthew chapter 17, um, uh, tells us that as he came, he, this, the father kneels down before Christ. And he asked Jesus to look on him and to have mercy on his son. And, of course, that is certainly what Jesus would want to do. So his son is, in this case, demon-possessed. He also, Luke also tells us about the same account in chapter 9 of his book. And in that particular account, Luke adds the detail that this was his only child. And so the man is bringing his only child to Christ. His only child is demon-possessed. Can you imagine the horror that this man would have? Uh, trying to raise a child, and and here this child uh, is is just seized by this demonic spirit, and and all of these terrible uh, symptoms that come from that. And so we need to see this distressed father, but we also need to think about the troubled boy. Um, and and let's think about him for a minute. How sad a situation was it for this child? The father asked Jesus to look on his son. So let's do the same thing. Uh, Let's see the gospel writers, uh, what they say, because again, we have different gospel writers writing about this same incident, and just like you would have if you had a crime scene and you came up to, maybe it's an accident, all right, and you came up to three different people, maybe standing on three different corners of a a four-corner intersection, if you went to those three different people, they'd all have a different angle, and it doesn't mean that any of them are, are lying to you when they give a slight variation of the story, and that's exactly what you find in the Gospels. So we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke all writing about this account, and it's interesting that we can grab some of those um, uh, details from the different Gospels and put them together and get a better picture, just like a detective would do. And so from the um, our, our Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, we're fi- we find that this young fellow was seized by the demon. And um, uh, what a t- tragic thing. Uh, matter of fact, I remember, and ag- again, whether this was a natural thing where uh, maybe an epileptic thing or whether it was a demonic thing, I honestly don't know. But I remember being in, um, I believe it was Kenobles years ago. And I was just kind of standing back in the There's a area where there's a, one of the roller coasters, I think, and there's a, also a pool, I think, that some of the, the kids will swim in. And I was—I think—in that general area. Anyway, there's a young girl. She'd probably be um, like a 12, 13-year-old girl. And all of a sudden, she went completely off of her feet and just was smacked on the ground like full force. And um, uh, boy, that was just a horrific thing. And now, again, it may have very well been—I don't know—if an epileptic seizure can that have that kind of a of a look to it, but um, that's what it I, I think people around us and, and, and myself, I was assuming that that's what it was. But in this particular case, this boy is like grabbed by this demon and seized by it. And then you, uh, Luke tells us in his account that the boy would be crying out and convulsing. Um, we're also told in Mark's account that he was being thrown down by the demon. And the Greek word where he says tears. Uh, seems to carry the idea of being thrown to the ground, uh, much like what I saw with that girl. Now, um, and then it does seem like he goes into an epileptic seizure. Now, again, please understand. There are many good and godly people that have epilepsy. But this boy, the demon, was evidently putting that those symptoms on him, including foaming the mouth, gnashing of his teeth, and becoming rigid. And Luke then adds that he is suffering even at the end. What it means by this is, listen to Luke's statement, it departs from him with great difficulty bruising him. So this demonic spirit not only would injure the child and then give the child these terrible symptoms, but then he would... Uh, really um, not leave him without, uh, uh, in some sense, giving him, bruising him, giving him great difficulty. And so the boy is troubled here. The father is distressed. But then we have to take a look at these um, disciples. Because in verse 18, it says, So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And so we see the powerless disciples. Uh, And the question that we all should be asking and the question that they later on will ask our Lord is they're asking, why couldn't we cast him out? Because Jesus had given them the ability to do this with other demonic spirits. Why was this spirit not coming out of this boy? And certainly the father doesn't know. Now, this is his problem, very possibly his first encounter with Christ. And he's bringing his son there. And, of course, Jesus wasn't there when he first got there, but he was assuming that the disciples could hopefully do something. And I think they would have assumed they could do something, and yet the boy was still bound to the demonic spirit. That leads us to something else about this difficult problem. Not only the distressed father and the troubled boy and these powerless disciples, but I want you to think about... How frustrated, a frustrated Christ. Christ truly was angered by this situation. Now, why? Listen to verse 19, just the first part of the verse. He answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? Faithless generation, he calls them. How long shall I be with you? Now, let me keep reading on the verse. How long shall I bear with you? I'll stop there. I've got just a little bit more that Jesus says here, but let me, let me talk to you briefly about how frustrated Christ was. Um, I think there's, and if, and if you were with me, if we were in our, our church service, um, I would be asking you this question in the audience. Why is Christ so frustrated here? And um, I think there's a couple things that, that would probably come out. If, if we had our people here. And one is, uh, there's a, uh, I think there's a lack of faith in these disciples. And the problem with it is, it's prolonging this child's suffering. Because Jesus said, oh, faithless generation. And um, so he is disgusted by their unbelief. So there obviously is a lack of faith, and it's causing this boy to still be in his his uh, time of suffering. He's not relieved of it yet, and faith was an, a, a major key here. I want to also read you out of Matthew's account, Matthew chapter seventeen and verse seventeen, because Jesus says it this way. Again, remember Matthew's looking at a slightly different angle. He said, here's how Matthew quotes Jesus. O oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? So there's a lack of faith, certainly, that's prolonging this child's suffering. But there's also human evil that's prolonging this child's suffering. He says perverse generation. You're evil. It's wicked. In both Matthew and Luke's account of this incident, they quote Jesus saying that this generation his generation was not just faithless, it was perverse. And the word means literally of an object on the potter's wheel becoming misshapen. Figuratively pervert, corrupt, distort. Uh, in passive sense of the truth, to be perverted or distorted. So, in the moral sense, the word actually means to be depraved. So what is so perverse? What's so evil that Jesus is seeing about this situation? Well, I think if you just pause and, and tell me, I think you'd agree with this. That as this boy is continuing to suffer, okay, the answers are not coming in for him yet. He's continuing to be bound by this demon and, and he's suffering as a result of this. What's going on? The scribes and Jesus' nine disciples are arguing. It's 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 very similar. If you could imagine a situation where one of your loved ones is in a very serious accident, maybe you and, and your loved one were in a car and you didn't get the brunt of the of the impact, but your loved one did. Maybe it, let's just say it's your brother, okay? And and so you you're out of the car, you're okay. Your brother is not okay. He's in very serious condition. He's in great pain. Maybe he's broken a femur, something of, of that will cause major pain. So it's not uh, necessarily going to cost him his life at this moment, but he is in agony. And, and so soon an ambulance pulls up, and here's an e, a couple EMTs that jump out. Now can you imagine, as they're getting down and trying to help him, they having this discussion with each other. Well, I think we ought to do this. No, 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 no. We ought to do this. And can you imagine them standing there and arguing for five, ten minutes while your brother is sitting there as laying on the ground in agony. I we would all say that's ridiculous. It's absolutely evil for these guys to have their egos going and trying to figure out who's right and trying to instead of helping this man who's in pain, that's what is bothering Jesus. The scribes are trying to make Jesus look bad in some way. And the disciples are trying to defend themselves in some way, and it's really boiling down to pride. And the result is, here's a young fella that is still bound by a demonic spirit, and it just bothered Christ to no end. By the way, I think this shows us how compassionate our Lord really is. He saw what you and I might not have seen if we had walked up as Peter or James or John, with Jesus, we might have, well, you know, they're arguing again, and, and then well, those those scribes, you know, going after, trying to hinder us, and not really thought about the problem of arguing while this boy is suffering. Well, that leads us to we saw that a uh, difficult problem. Now let's talk about the powerful Savior because. In the, in the end of verse 19, Jesus makes a very simple statement. Let me read the whole thing. He says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. That's a life-changing invitation. Bring him to me. Can I say to you that Jesus would say the same to you with all your burdens that you're bearing right now? Come to me. You say, are you serious about that? I absolutely am. The verses that helped my father as a young man, about twelve years old, to come to Christ was an invitation that our Lord gave at the end of a sermon. And here's what Jesus said: Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you in that category? You say, I'm 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 under a burden, a burden of sin, I'm under a burden of guilt. I'm under a burden of shame. I feel like God is 10 million miles away from me. I've turned my back on the Lord many a time. Now, I want to remind you of a little word that Jesus said here. Come to me, all. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Jesus is saying, and believe me, I've had to take advantage of this same invitation, even as a Christian, He's saying, when you are burdened down, when you are beaten down, when you have been defeated and you're frustrated and you're and and you don't know where to turn, come to me. And what does he say he'll do for you? And I can say this by personal experience. He says, I will give you rest. Keep going. He says, take my yoke upon you. What does he mean by that? Well, he means by take my burden. of of living for me, put that on you. The idea of identify with me, walk with me. But what you find, the yoke is is something that um, we've talked about before on this broadcast, and that is, it's what they would use to um, hook an oxen up to a burden. And sometimes you'd plow with one oxen, sometimes you'd plow with two. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm willing to pull the load with you. Yoke up with me. So it's not just, well, okay, I'll forgive you. Get out of my sight. I'll see you when I get to heaven and maybe when I'm less angry with you. He is literally saying, come to me. When you're burdened down, when you're beaten down, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Hop into the yoke with me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. By the way, this is the only time from my understanding. I heard this just recently that Christ ever talked about his own heart. And here's what he said. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants you to come to Him. And here is a life-changing invitation that our Lord gave to this Father. He said, bring Him to me. Bring your Son to me. Can I say to you that the problem with so many throughout this world is not that they have never heard the invitation. The problem is they don't want to come. And you know why so many people do not want to come to Jesus? Because they know that coming to Jesus means I need to repent of my sin, and I need to be willing to let God take my sin from me. And the reality is that for so many, they love their sin too much, and say to themselves, "I could, I, I just, I, I, I don't want to give it up. I don't want to give up my drugs. I don't want to give up destroying my body with alcohol. I don't want to give up uh, sleeping with my girlfriend. I don't want to give up." An adulterous relationship. And so they say, I will bear the burden of all of it. I'll bear the guilt. I'll bear the shame. I'll bear it all because I don't want Christ. And the reality is, if you want to change your life, Jesus holds an invitation out to you, just like he did to this father to bring his son, just like he did to that whole crowd of people. When he said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Hawkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Want
0: you also notice in verse 20, there's this life-threatening misery. This young fellow's not out of the woods yet. It says then when they brought him to him, when they brought the little boy to Jesus. And when, they, when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So when I preached this message to my church family, I asked them why. Why is uh, this boy now uh, really afflicted again by the demon? And We really don't know. Let me just give you a couple possibilities to think about. I'll give you a list of be about four. Well, possibly the demon is trying to destroy the boy before Jesus can deliver him. You say, is is Satan that evil? Oh, yeah. And can I say to you this? When you choose your sin over Christ, you are choosing Satan over God. That's really what you're doing. That's That's who the author of sin is. That's the devil. And that's why you'll end up in hell one day because you'll get what, what your master is going to get. And you'll deserve it. And that's why you need to turn from your sin. You want you want to uh, live with, with God forever, you need to turn from sin and Satan to God. You need to turn to Christ. And so this demon may very well have been trying to destroy the boy before Jesus could deliver him. Or it could be also that the demon is frustrated by what he knows is about to happen. And that is, he's going to be thrown out of this boy. The third possibility is he's trying to keep the boy from Jesus in some way, although I think that's pretty foolish, probably not likely. Number four, he could be trying to inflict some final suffering before the boy is freed from his torment that he's been giving him for so long, and I think that is very likely. So we see this life-threatening misery. This demon is tearing him and, and giving him at least one last um, amount of suffering. I want you also to consider what I'll call the super-intense bondage that this young fellow had. Verse 21, So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Can you imagine that? From childhood. Right from the when he's just a little squirt. Now, I'll go on. And often... He has thrown him. This is the demonic spirit has thrown him into both into the fire, into the water to destroy him. So can you imagine being a father? You're walking on a, by a calm lake and all of a sudden your boy is thrown into the water and you have to rescue him? And he could have been convulsing and going through whatever else the demon was doing to him when you're trying to rescue him. Can you imagine you're going by a fire? I, <clears throat> we just had a a little cookout in our yard for our assistant pastor. He's got five little ones, and um, boy, one of the little ones started getting close to the fire. And, and you know, as an adult, you think, "Who? I got to be on alert here." And and his little foot slipped a little bit, and he started to go. And uh, I'll tell you what, we got up as quick as I could, grabbed the little guy, and uh, thank the Lord he wasn't burned. But can can you imagine being a, a, a father? And of course, in that. Uh, society anytime you need to get warm you don't have coal you don't have electricity you don't have any of that so so you're using fire and it, it seems to have happened maybe more than one time where there's a fire and all of a sudden the boy is thrown into that fire that's what i call super intense bondage because of the length of time this would indicate the child probably knew nothing of normal life without this demonic oppression and also the severity of the attacks. The demon is attempting to drown him. The demon is attempting to burn him. Now, there's also in this uh, in this account this, this a, a faith impact principle, and you f- see it in the in the next uh, interaction between Jesus and the Father. They're they're standing there. This the, Jesus is just asking a couple questions about the boy. And the man said, you know, he's been thrown into the fire, he's been thrown into the water to destroy him. But then the man concluded with this, and I'm in the bottom of verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, what we see here is the father's small faith. And this could have been one of the problems of getting the boy healed in the first place. You'll notice that he doesn't, like some people would come to Jesus, like the leper. Um, in in um, it comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I know you can do it. I just don't know if you will do it for me. Now, the centurion would say when he wants his servant healed, Lord, you don't even need to come to uh, my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, those are people who really have faith. But this man is showing us he really doesn't have a lot of faith. Maybe he had been told about Jesus. Very possibly he may never have seen him before, but heard that he'd done many miracles. So what's his statement? Well, if you can do anything, then have compassion on us and help us. He obviously doesn't have a lot of faith. And our Lord picked right up on that. Jesus then comes back and listen to what Jesus said. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. So Jesus throws that one right back in his court. The father really is expressing a very small amount of faith. If you can do anything and Jesus says no, it's not if I can do anything. He's saying, here's here's what you need if you can believe all things are possible. Now, I do like the dad's response. The first one I don't because, you know, he's he's well, he's being honest. That's how he is. He doesn't he's not sure that Jesus can help him. But in in response to Jesus' challenge, if you can believe all things are possible, the father says this, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I like that. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, I believe you can help me. But I'm not sure I have enough faith. I have a, a certain amount of it, but I don't know if I have enough. Would you help my unbelief? I've been there. I've definitely been there. Remember a number of years ago when we were building our our what we call our family center, the Beacon Family Center. We um, had made a decision. I felt led of the Lord um, several years before. We decided to build that building that um, that I didn't feel like the church should go into debt. You know, you never know what's going to happen in the economy. Um, we, My wife and I have made a decision that we did not want to go into debt ourselves unless it was like for a house, but like a car, any of that, we would not go into debt. And so I felt as a pastor I should do to my congregation what I would want done to me. And I had read a really really good book on keeping uh, churches should stay out of debt. We had burned our mortgage for... Uh, a parsonage that we had bought a number of years earlier when I really hadn't thought about that principle. And so I remember preaching to my people, this is a number of years back, and I said, I, I believe that we ought to stay out of debt. And uh, and if God enables us to build something, then, then we do it. I also believed that we didn't have to have all the money in hand, that there could be a measure of, of faith in that. And I told the people on different occasions, I thought that if we, had again, it's not that this is a anything that I got out of the Bible, but just uh, trying to be sensitive to the Lord, I just felt like maybe 50%. If we had 50% of what we wanted to, to do, then we could proceed. Another ministry I know that had been very successful uh, with that principle, so I kind of borrowed that from them. I just said that would be my my thought, and I'm not, you know, um i'm not saying it was inspired by god but it was to me a wise way to look at it 50% and so i remember um we we uh, decided that we would build the family center and that it's a it's a large building it's 120 by 80 roughly and um, we decided we would build it in stages, so that we do the superstructure and other things, and we try to be using it, you know, as soon as possible. But um, so our first um, spending, we had already paid for the the all the groundwork to be done. Thank the Lord for that earlier, um, and uh, so that was all taken care of. So basically, we were looking now, and and we had no debt from that. We had. Oh, I forget a couple, maybe two hundred thousand uh, dollars saved up, or maybe two fifty. I forget. And so, um, whatever it was, um, it may have been may have been three hundred because we I think we had to lay out roughly somewhere between five hundred and six hundred thousand dollars that we needed to complete that first phase, um, which would get us enclosed. It would get insulation in. Um, uh, some things on uh, like a, 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 like a plastic on the walls, and then we would take a lot of the things from there. So as, um, as I remember getting <laughs> when we voted to do this, now that meant that we were about300,000 dollars short, something along that line of what we needed. and the project was going to be started probably just in a, in a, in a month or two, whatever and so it wouldn't be very long, and that 50% would be gone, and we would need roughly $300,000. And so I remember getting down on my knees in my living room and saying, Lord, you know, I've kind of put your name on the line here. (laughs) I hope I was right. I I felt like we shouldn't go into debt, and I felt like, you know, 50% was a, a good figure. But, Lord, I believe you can do it but help my unbelief i don't know if my faith is strong enough and and quite honestly it wasn't my strength of faith anyway it was the power of god and the lord we prayed two things we prayed that god would reduce the cost of the building which never happens you know in in vast majority of circumstances normally the cost goes up and often will go up significantly I said, would you bring the cost down, and would you bring money in? And within a few days, I kid you not, we, 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 we were just looking at, first of all, an architect. Um, the architect that we got was literally about $20,000 less than anybody else and did a great, did a fine job. Uh, we found um, that we did not need to put a sprinkler system in. We thought we did. Um, that saved us over $100,000. Um, within a short period of time, not only did we pay every bill, but we were able to continue on and, and finish the building, and we actually uh, ended up receiving, in between gifts that were given and uh, savings that we had, it was close to $500,000 that God saved us in that building. And we use it um, to this day. Now, again, it was not, that's why I feel with this guy, I really do. Because it's like, here's a guy that, um, that says, Lord, I believe. I don't know if I have enough faith. Help my unbelief. And you know what? An honest prayer like that, God will answer that. Jesus helped him. He did help him in his unbelief and in his little faith. Because it's really not so much your great faith or mine. It is the great Savior. And if we'll put our faith in him and not in ourselves, not in do I have enough faith, but are you great enough? Oh, God can do great things and does. So we see now the complete deliverance of this little guy. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together. So now it's going to be a crowd gathering around. He really didn't want that. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Now you can imagine, people are starting to run toward the situation. They can see Jesus has arrived. They can see this boy that was not healed yet is now in front of Christ. And before, hopefully, everybody gets there, Jesus doesn't want to make this a circus. He wants to help this little guy. And so he noticed, he says, deaf and dumb spirit. That was what the spirit was doing to this boy. I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Never come back. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. So as the crowd is gathering, and this boy has been convulsed one final time by this wicked spirit, the spirit is left, and left for good. Here that little boy is. He's laying there, and it looks like maybe maybe would demon killed him. And that's what people began to think. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose, and that little guy was delivered. Now, that's great, but the story doesn't end there because we have these disciples, and they're saying, well, why, why couldn't we get this done? Verse 28, and when he'd come into the house, so now... They'd gotten away from the crowd. His disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. That was a great question for those those confused disciples to ask. Why could we not cast it out? But that leads us then to some faith principles that I'd really challenge you with because you and I, um, can run into situations where honestly we're asking for something that is good and that would glorify God, and yet um, we don't see the answer. Now, let me read you what Matt, how Matthew puts it. Because this is in this is when Jesus is answering those disciples' questions. So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So we see from, especially from Matthew's account, which is a little more full than Mark's, that unbelief was a problem. The disciples should have believed that God had the answer for this suffering boy. Let me tell you where I believe the the logic comes from. And that is this. Okay? Has God brought a person with a genuine need in front of me? And the answer is yes. Okay? The boy has a genuine need. And does the father and the son as far as we can tell Want help? And the answer again would be yes. So when the help does not come, do I just assume, well, God must not be powerful enough on this one? No. That's why Jesus was upset with their unbelief. They were to assume that if God sent them that problem, let's be honest, God certainly was allowing this to happen. And in his providence, he sent that father and son to those nine disciples, and he expected that they would do something about it. You say, well, well, they tried. Yeah. So what happens if when you try to do the right thing that is clearly in the will of God, and nothing happens, what do you do then? Do you just assume that God in some way isn't able to do this and start arguing with those who are criticizing you? No, Jesus is saying this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. This meant that what the disciples were to do was not argue with their critics, but spend some time praying. Jesus expected them to get off by themselves and say, fellas, look, this boy isn't healed. He needs to be healed. This would be God's will for him to be delivered from this demonic spirit. It doesn't seem to be that he's resistant. It doesn't seem to be that his dad, he certainly brought him here. So it's not like the dad is resistant. He may not have a lot of faith. We need to beseech God on this. We, we can't give up on this. This boy matters to God. That's what Jesus expected. He expected them to pray more about it. He even expected them, if necessary, to fast about it. Now you say, what's fasting? Well, fasting is giving up, say, food or drink for a period of time in order to seek God. And specifically what you're doing is you're trying to seek God. Is there something in my life keeping me from the answer to prayer that I'm seeking? God, is it me? If the boy's not being healed, is it me? Is it because you're you're really um, um, upset with something in my life. Hey, can that happen to those of us who are trying to serve the Lord? Oh, absolutely. Who knows? Maybe God would point out, or, well, there's a, a person over there and, 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 and you don't have a, you have a, a, a bitter spirit toward them. Here's a situation over here. You were unkind to a person you've never made it right. What might God put his finger on? If we said to ourselves instead, well, I guess God's not able to handle this. one. or We can't figure out why. We're just going to have to let that one go. Well, instead of doing that, saying, look, this is God's will. This kid is not supposed to have a demon the rest of his life. They brought him to us for help. God, what is going on? Why are you not answering? Is it I? Is it me? Am I the problem? Sometimes prayer and fasting is necessary to seek the Lord and Jesus expected that instead of defending themselves even if they thought they were defending him and getting into an argument like, a, like two EMTs over a, a, a broken man stop it and help and if you don't have the power in yourself right now to help that guy then seek God's help for it seek what, what's going on with the Lord Well, what do we conclude from this? Well, the world is full of suffering people, is it not? We also see that God cares about those who are suffering. I mean, Jesus was angry with these men, with his own disciples. He's angry with them because they're not, they're forgetting the kid that's suffering. That shows us God's heart. God has a heart for those who are suffering. And if you're suffering right now, and I'm talking about, again, the, the guilt of sin and the, the fear that comes from, from, um, from, the, from the devil and from doing wrong. May I tell you that God cares about that. He wants you to be delivered. Third thing we'd have to conclude is there are many problems that are far too, too difficult for us, for those of us who are God's servants. Now, let's remember, these are the future 12 apostles. Well, not, not Judas, but the other 11 of them. And now Peter james and john they're they're three of the leaders they're they're with Jesus, but still you you'd have eight godly men who will who will go out and serve the Lord the rest of their lives these are These are good and godly men. But there are many problems that are too difficult for us. All spiritual problems are way beyond us. We must know God's truth as God's servants. We must speak God's truth. We must live out God's truth. And the person we want to help must follow God's truth. Again, many times it's not, the, it's not the, the fact that people don't know where they can get help or they sometimes don't even know what they need to do to get the help. The problem is many times they don't want the help. And the key to solving any spiritual problem, this is my conclusion number four, is to get people to Jesus. Bring him to me, the Savior said. Bring him to me. Some spiritual problems, number five, are more severe than others. Severe spiritual problems are often seen in the length of the bondage and the severity of it. And this little boy had both. He had a long time bondage. It was very sincere, very severe. Conclusion number six, we must believe that God is more powerful than sin or Satan. And I tell you, folks, although all of us, you know, who are Christians, we'd write down if you were asked on a question on a test, who's more powerful, God or Satan? Well, we'd say God. Uh, we'd think, oh, that's an easy one. But I will say to you that there's a difference in what we say we believe and what we really practice. And we can come to place. Well, this guy's just—he's just too far gone. Oh, really? So God can't pierce that person's heart. Now, I'm not saying, again, there's there's an element where we as humans have to make choices. But I will tell you that God can and often does pierce the hardest hearted people. We must believe and consistently believe that God is more powerful than sin or Satan. Conclusion number seven, faith is a huge key in the work of God. We see that Jesus is saying, oh, faithless and perverse generation. He expected his disciples to continue to believe that he could heal that boy and that they could heal that boy through God's power. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, and the him there is God. It's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is a huge key in the work of God. Conclusion number eight. Jesus expected his disciples to persevere when the boy was not healed immediately. He did not expect them to back away. He expected them to continue to believe and to seek the reason why the boy was not healed yet. And I just think, again, I, I, whether it be my own ministry or, or, or countless other ones across this world and down through the generations... Where there's a case and it just seems too hard, and we we yeah, we prayed about it and we, we, we thought about it, but nothing happened, and we moved on, and that is not what the Lord wants. He wants us to continue to seek the answer because it is not his will for people to go on in bondage. Now, again, they will have a choice, and there are many times that people will, when they're invited by Christ to come. They say, no, I don't want them. Well, you can't, you can't change that. That They have a right to do that. They have a right before God. But we, when people truly want help, or even in situations where that person doesn't want help yet, that doesn't mean that we stop. We keep seeking God for answers. So, Really, when, uh, I think one of the major things that comes out of this passage that I would challenge you with is this. When your prayers are not immediately answered, will you seek God or will you give up? Will you go back to the drawing board, so to speak, and say, okay, Lord, this is a good request. I don't think there's anything wrong with the request. If you want to tell me it's wrong and show me it's wrong, that's fine. But until you do, I'm believing that you can do something here. When your prayer is not immediately answered, there's that choice that you're going to have to make. Will I keep seeking God, or will I give up? The story is told, and I'm I'm confident that it's uh, not reality. Maybe somebody had a dream of this effect. but In this man's dream, we'll say that he uh, goes to heaven, and he's looking at all these beautiful, wonderful things and just just overwhelmed by it all and, and, and they're going by a certain room and he notices, because the angel's been showing him everything he notices the angel kind of ushers him beyond this room and so it kind of was weird because the angel hadn't done that with anything else and so he stopped for a second he said, well, why didn't you show me what's in that room and he says, well, because heaven is a you know, it's a place of great joy and and, and there's no sadness and, and he, said, I, he said, well you, if you saw that room it would make you sad he said, I, I really don't want to show you that and the guy begins in his dream to talk to the angel. Oh, come on, I you know, I, I want to see what's in that room. And so the angel finally agreed and said, "Okay, and if you really want to see it, he opens the door, and there are all these beautiful things in there—beautiful presents, beautiful, presence, beautiful um, and wonderful things. And the guy looks around. And he says to the angel, "What? Why would you? Why would you not show this to me?" And the angel said, because this room contains all of the answers to prayer that believers could have gotten, that God's children could have gotten, if they'd have only persevered. And don't think, when I'm saying that, that there are cars and trinkets and toys there. Think a little deeper than that. Have you given up on a loved one? Maybe it's a brother or sister and, and, and problems have come between you. You've been converted. They haven't been. And that's a wall in itself. I get that. I understand that. But you stop praying. You basically said, well, that's it. They're too far gone. Satan's going to get a victory there. Really? You know that? Are you sure you want to give up on that? Maybe you've tried to have victory over a certain sin or habit in your life. And you've lost again. And the temptation is to just throw in the towel, stop praying, stop seeking God, stop trying to grow, and you're just frustrated and you want to walk away. May I say, you've got a choice to make. When your prayer and your desire isn't answered, if it's a good and godly thing, I'm not talking about something foolish, but a good and godly thing, will you hang on? and say, Lord, I can't give up. I can't stop praying for my spouse to be saved. I can't stop praying for my child to be saved. I can't stop praying for victory in my life. Because the bottom line is this, let nothing stop you from seeking God's answers for the big issues in your life. That frustrated Christ, that his disciples were too proud to keep their focus on a needy little boy that came to them. Father, help us. We have the same tendencies. Lord, forgive us for giving up. Uh, Many times, Lord, when we could hang on and get an answer to a real big burden, a big need, a spiritually eternal, significant need, Lord, give us tenacity and faith, we pray.
1: In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at cawkinsbaptistchurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at caulkinsbaptistchurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again and send it to a friend, the link to this podcast is at radiobold.com slash caulkinsbaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life
0: and light
1: he free.